0: Trail and ultra runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the CoopCast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And this episode of the podcast is with the incredible and the incredibly unique Dr. Nancy Guest. Dr. Guest is a registered dietitian. She is a personal trainer as well as a strength and conditioning coach to elite athletes and everyday athletes alike. She has served as Canada's head dietitian for the Vancouver 2010 Olympics as well as the 2015 Pan American Games. She has also prepared athletes for the last four Olympics in London, Sochi, Rio, and Pyeongchang. Dr. Guest has an illustrious research career, which culminated with the 2019 Dr. Michael C. Archer award for research excellence. And I cannot understate how amazing that is to actually receive. Congratulations, Nancy. That wasn't that long ago that she actually received that. This podcast is all about one of Nancy's areas of expertise which is caffeine and performance for athletes, in particular in an ultra marathon situation. Ultra runners are in this really unique proposition where we can use caffeine for AQ performances for workouts. We can use caffeine to stay awake and alert during the wee hours of the morning for those overnight ultras. And we can also use caffeine to stave off fatigue for those long runs or for ultra marathons. And those are all very unique propositions which Nancy and I talk about throughout the course of this podcast. I had a lot of fun with this. Nancy is an awesome follow on Twitter. The links to that will be in the show notes. Go give her a follow on Twitter. You will not be disappointed. But for right now, I'm gonna step out of the way. Here's my podcast with Nancy Guest all about caffeine and performance. I actually forgot about this. How'd you get it? How did you get so kind of like wrapped up in caffeine in the first place? Cause this is like one of your many things that we were talking about before we started recording. Like caffeine just seems to be one of those things. How did you get involved in it in the first place?
1: Yeah. So where that came about, um, working with athletes, obviously, and just, uh, active people, uh, caffeine is, is well known, uh, to, to sort of give you a, a little boost, and most of us, of course, do enjoy our morning cup of coffee, and and uh, most of us have those pleasurable effects, uh, but where I became more serious in looking at the research was because I found with my own athletes I worked with, not everybody was getting a performance enhancement from caffeine, so there seemed to be some inter-individual variability just in my practice. And of course, there have been a number of studies written on caffeine, and I had read several of them, uh, but there, it wasn't consistent that every study showed a benefit. And what became more apparent it, after I started my PhD was, as I looked more closely, we rarely see individual raw data being presented, and we just see the overall effects that the, ca- the the outcome on average There was no effect of caffeine or there was an effect. And because my lab uh, looks at uh, the the research is in nutrigenomics, so nutrient gene interactions, this is where I sort of thought perhaps the same thing is going on as we see in the caffeine research with regard to heart disease, that depending on your genetics, uh, you may have a risk of high blood pressure or heart attack. Uh, and if you have a, a certain uh, variant, uh, you may have there may be a protective effect. Uh, so, so this sort of brought me to the the potential realization that this may be happening in the sports sciences as well, where we're seeing different responses to caffeine through differences uh, genetically in the metabolism of caffeine. And uh, so that's where I embarked on this journey to see if caffeine, in fact, was uh, the response was modified based on your genotype in certain genes that we look at that have been known to affect uh, caffeine metabolism and response.
0: And we're going to go over that uh, genetic difference in just a second. Um, I've almost felt that over the years, you and I have been practicing for a similar amount of time that caffeine and altitude have kind of followed the same trajectory where, and I've talked about this on this podcast before the listeners will remember a little bit of this dialogue where it wasn't that long ago, maybe seven or 12 years ago where the de facto thing to do was to go and do an altitude camp. We thought everybody responded positive, positively to it. All the elite athletes were doing it, you know, live high, train low. There were altitude symposiums and conferences and things like that. And then, as the practice kind of got more and more nuanced we started to notice that not everybody responded and we're taking a little bit more of a cautious look at it now the reasons for that difference and that that individual difference in response is not solely related to genetics on the altitude side of things but caffeine has kind yeah. of followed a similar pattern, where yeah, I mean, you remember, in the especially in the, like the late '90s with all the cyclists and things like that. I mean, they were downright abusive <laughs> towards towards caffeine and caffeine use, and we're starting to filter out a little bit more use of it. Have you like seen the same thing with cat with caffeine to where now we're trying to like almost like tailor it down a little bit more? But is is it really at a genetic level to where that tailoring is most appropriate?
1: Well, you know what I like to say about uh, life in general is there are only two things that are impacting uh, your behavior or your health, uh, genetics and the environment, or the interaction of your genetics and the environment. Uh, So basically, almost everything could be traced back to our genetics. Uh, So we have not identified all the genes that affect Uh, altitude training or caffeine or creatine or uh, our response to various phytonutrients. Uh, There's a lot out there that is yet to be discovered, but I do believe that we have enough data showing differences when it comes to feeling jittery or anxious or more energetic or uh, having more difficulty sleeping. So sleep disturbances are on a spectrum uh, between individuals, among individuals, and that we have the severity of withdrawal effects, and there have been associations to genes. But I think really uh, when it comes down to an individual, there's going to be some interaction with their past experience uh, coming from uh, perhaps the, the habits of their parents, uh, their mother during pregnancy, all the way to... How they train, how experienced they are, what their habitual use of caffeine is, uh, and what their choice of the form of caffeine. So there are several factors. And you're right, what we are trying to do is sort of pin it down to give the best personalized and individualized recommendation. And I think we do have to guide our recommendations based on several layers of personalization. And so it's not just about genetics. Uh, you know, that's one layer that I provide guidance to my athletes. Uh, but there are many other things to consider, just like with general diets. Um, you know, there, there are many factors that go into what is the best diet for you. Uh, so when I think it the same goes for supplements, and we can get into sort of all those reasons and, and how I assess an individual of whether they should use caffeine at all. Even if it is providing a benefit, we still may advise, uh, again, on a one to one level. I have some athletes that uh, I try to um, discourage them from too much caffeine use because I can see the uh, severe uh, response they have to sleep disturbance. And then certain individuals that may be at risk of taking sleep aids, whether over the counter or prescription. So that's sort of an area uh, that needs to be addressed we can talk about. Uh, but I do think uh, people need to be on their individualized caffeine uh, program. And I, I say that similar to my my colleague, Amy Bender, which some of her research will come up, uh, where she talks about athletes being on an individualized sleep program. and. I think we need to take all those factors and decide how are we going to approach caffeine with this athlete?
0: You know, it's so funny you mentioned that because I know a lot of athletes out there that are going to use caffeine, particularly in an evening, evening workout in order to get the ergogenic effect within the workout itself, but they don't realize the effect that it has on sleep afterwards. And It's almost like one up, one down or one up, two down. Maybe, maybe they get a little bit of boost on the workout and they can reap some benefits from that workout. But then if their sleep and their recovery is impacted, it's almost, it almost comes out as a wash before we get too far into the weeds, into the individualization. And we, we, people like you and I, we love to do that, right? Yeah, People want to know what are just the general guidelines if they're looking to use caffeine in a, in what I'm going to call a traditional ergogenic way right they're going to use it right before a workout or a hard workout in order to or race in order yeah. to enhance that and there are lots lots of studies Partially because it's easy to get college kids to it's easy to recruit college kids for two things: alcohol and caffeine. So we have a yeah. lot. We have really robust research on how that on how this actually works. So let's start with that framework. If somebody's going to use caffeine in that traditional ergogenic sense, sense for a workout or a race, what should that look like in terms of dose and timing?
1: Well, it, it's an interesting question because. We have the practical experience, and then we have the research, the published research, and sometimes that doesn't always align. Uh, so I sort of wear two hats: I have the researcher hat, and then I have the sport dietitian hat. And uh, so, uh, first of all, I I have a, a very uh, thorough assessment with each athlete I'm going to be working with. So it depends on the sport. Uh, So for example, if a a training session or a race or a competition, if we're looking at 90 minutes or under, I think uh, probably the most consistent and beneficial approach we see in practice and in the research is to supplement anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes ahead of time and that is going to be with your traditional three to six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body mass. Now where uh, this can can differ, we sort of have a, uh, a bit of latitude with our approach is some individuals are getting that benefit on a, a dose as low as two milligrams per kilogram of body mass. And I, in my research, wanted to try and identify that that dose where we could see that benefit. So I used, we can get into that, the 2 and 4 milligrams. Uh, But in my experience, and as far as a lot of the published research, I don't believe we need to go up to that 6 milligrams per kilogram. So I I would have an individual start out with the the 3 to 4 milligrams. And, again, 30 to 60 minutes before they begin uh, that training session or that competition if it's around 90 minutes. Uh, and I think that's the, the best approach for that time frame. Now if we're looking for uh, an endurance sport that or a training session that's lasting longer, so looking at two to three to four hours all the way up to uh, Ironmans, triathlons, Uh, uh, ultra-endurance events, then our strategy shifts. And we wouldn't want to start out with such a high dose, but we would look to start out with a smaller dose and then have those intervals of the smaller doses uh, throughout, especially as the athlete starts to fatigue. And I think uh, we do see a consistent benefit physically and cognitively when we give caffeine at a point where fatigue is starting to set in. So I think caffeine may have its strongest benefits when you're starting to get tired. And your, your listeners will be uh, glad to know that the most consistent benefits we do see with caffeine are in the endurance arena. So the shorter the span of that uh, exercise test or that sport, um, I think the research gets mixed, but the longer you're training or competing or racing, uh, there seems to be an increase in the the chance that you're going to benefit from caffeine. We'll have to consider other factors, uh, but the good news is, I would say most endurance athletes will benefit significantly, uh, and I, I don't mean that necessarily statistically, but – have a, a, a huge benefit anywhere from one, two, three, four 4%. And that's, that's a big jump.
0: Th- this conversation is going exactly like I had uh, fore- forethought that it would, where it's just giving us more and more of an excuse to take in more caffeinated products. For, from an ultra marathon perspective, though, I can almost see three different scenarios not to dive down too many rabbit holes, but you're giving them to me. So I'm going to take them. Yeah. The first of which is just what you mentioned. It's a workout. I'm going to go and I'm going to do a hard workout. It's less than 90 minutes. And I'm going to take some dose of caffeine 30 to 60 minutes before the session itself. And before we get too far into all of these different scenarios, just to level set uh, things for people, you mentioned this range of, I'm going to give the bigger range, two to four milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight, practically speaking, what does that look like?
1: Well, that, and that's actually a a good question twofold. Uh, That looks like, uh, so for example, for an 80 kilogram male, um, and I'm accustomed to this just from my research where uh, we did give the two and four milligram dose, that's generally one and a half cups of coffee or three cups of coffee. So the two milligram was the one and a half, the four milligram for that body weight. Now uh, the caveat there is that having a coffee, uh, let's say you go to your, if we don't want to name names, but one of the most popular uh, retail coffee outlets uh, globally, uh, one day you can go and get your tall brewed coffee that may be 150 milligrams. The next day at the same location, that same tall may be 250 milligrams. So we have that variability, which uh, in my opinion, it means that I, if I want to be more precise with dosing, I do advise tablets or capsules. And of course, the more elite athlete we have or in the research uh, cer- under research circumstances, we need to be exact with those doses. Uh, but I do think that that's where we run into uh, some issues with differences in outcomes. Is we don't know exactly how much that individual took. Uh, so, so seventy milligrams, for example, is a typical espresso shot. Okay. So, so uh, you know, having two espressos, that's one hundred and forty milligrams. Now that's not quite going to reach your two milligrams per kilogram for uh, a heavier male, but certainly that reaches it for a, a 150 pound athlete.
0: Okay. That puts it in the ballpark. I just wanted every okay. ultra runners. We're a pretty extreme lot. Right. And if, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned this six milligram per kilogram type of threshold, because in absence of that, we're going to go overboard and Yeah. In 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 everything like any other endurance athlete. Okay, so back to my point. We've got these three scenarios, right? We've got the workout scenario where you're kind of like taking it in advance, right? We have the what I'm gonna call the long run scenario. And I agree with you that I think that bang for your buck, that's where caffeine is really gonna shine through. Where you where you're going out there for two, three, four, five hours, and there is some level of fatigue that's gonna be imposed that's where you can get some big hits from caffeine usage. And then we've got this third scenario that we might have to speculate on a little bit because it's really unique to ultra running. And most of the research is going to be derived from military on this. And that is from a cognitive and a sleep deprivation point of view. A lot of these ultras are going 20 hours, 30 hours, 40 hours into one over one night and maybe over multiple nights And ultra runners are going to want to, they don't, they don't care about the traditional ergogenic effect in the early part of a race. They care about, Hey, I need to be able to stay awake and make good decisions later. So let's talk about the, the kind of like the latter two as fatigue starts to kind of creep in to an endurance session. You mentioned that caffeine can be kind of like layered in, in small doses as that starts to happen, what, what does that look like? Because there's a number of sports nutrition products that athletes can choose from that usually range between 12 and a half to up to 200 milligrams of caffeine per kind of, uh, serving size, right? Unit. Yeah. Unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what does that look like from a practical sp- perspective? If we're looking at using caffeine on like a long run or a long type of event?
1: Well, my first uh, response is always, it's individual. Uh, (laughs) You know, the context matters and um, it it depends on the person. Uh, But I would say uh, you certainly don't want to start out with that big hit from the get-go. And uh, hopefully we can get an athlete started uh, with no caffeine, just being well-rested, well-fueled and start – uh, implementing those those small uh, doses as as you need more fuel. So perhaps when you need that gel or you need that, you know, in the in the second or third hour, uh, take a hit of caffeine there. Uh, once you're perhaps at that eight hour mark, you need a higher dose, and maybe you actually do a, a fifty milligram tablet or half a tablet. Um, so something interesting is to consider your circadian rhythm. So there's sort of other confounders that are involved in this uh, approach or knowing what the outcome may may be. And uh, so what we've seen in some of the sleep deprivation research is that the the circadian rhythm is very influential and uh, not only on your ability to stay awake, but also your performance. And so uh, one study showed that even at uh, the 30-hour mark when it was daylight, there, it was easier for subjects to stay up um, than it was when, at the 24-hour mark when it was dark. So they were more sleep-deprived, but because their body was used to being awake at that daytime, even after missing a whole 24 hours of sleep, they could better handle it. So I think in the evening, so when it's dark, these athletes are probably going to need to pump in the caffeine at perhaps 50 milligrams or more per hour. And I think we do see uh, at the end of some of these events uh, that uh, over a 24-hour period, some athletes are at the the 100 to 200 milligrams. Some are up to close to 1,000 milligrams that they've consumed in that time period. So I think uh, knowing when you're starting to drop off and trying to get it just before you, you know, sort of get into that uh, beyond the point of no return. Um, but I, I would say uh, to consider uh, the if it, the daylight, also what time um, you would be eating, and so we're more likely to be awake at meal times, and so to sort of foresee uh, when those are occurring during the event. But when your body is actually going to be winding down. And sleeping in regular life uh, in this 24-hour period, that's when you're going to need those hits, probably at, at the greatest frequency, um, and that that moderate dose, though, 30 to 50 to maybe 70. And uh, I, I would say through uh, tablets, uh, you know, broken up, or, um, again, if you're needing the fuel as well through that form. Through
0: sports I nutrition products. Yeah, so we're kind yeah, of we're, we're yeah. kind we're kind of getting into the typical ultra marathon situation, especially hundred mile ultra marathon situation. And there's this there's this phenomenon that's not just in ultra running, but we tend to we tend to think it is, and it's called the witching hour. And so the typical races start out at five six a.m. Sometime yeah. around two or three or four a.m. And there's actually really good research to to draw upon with this. Is the highest rate of dropout for any ultra endurance type of event. It's right before that twenty four hour period of, of when they've actually been going. It also happens to coincide when everybody's the drowsiest and, and and the sleepiest. Yeah, and knowing this, most ultra runners will want to try to counteract that with yeah. with something. Sometimes they'll use a pacer to keep them awake. Sometimes they'll use music. And caffeine is one of those substances that they will actually use. But I think there's a lot of confusion to how to actually implement that in real time. What, what I'm hearing you saying is to roll it in at a slightly lower, slightly lower and smaller doses, yeah. perhaps in the hours before that time frame.
1: Yeah, or, or more frequently. So every 60 to 90 minutes. Uh, taking that it it also depends on on energy expenditure so um, I think if you are or uh, intensity so if you're going through if this is a flat race or if it's um, if you're the the fatigue is setting in and you have some elevation to conquer uh, I think perhaps you need to you know to to hit your system with a, a bit of a higher dose depending on body weight again so we we do see that typical 100 milligrams used as flat cola, for example. We have the research behind that. Now, that's a different hit for someone who weighs 120 pounds versus 180 pounds. Uh, so, so I think um, if we look at the one milligram per, per kilogram of body weight per 60 to 90 minutes.
0: Mm, that's super important.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think that sort of uh, you know we, we get into that that ballpark. Now I would not be doing that for a twenty four hour period, but uh, if if you're saying that 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 witching hour is uh, about uh, two to four a.m., you said yeah,
0: somewhere around there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and then there, there's also going to be. Uh, another uh, sort of uh, that afternoon sleepiness as we see the adenosine rise. And so that's really what we're trying to counteract in the body is uh, the adenosine, which is that sleepy calming hormone that gets released uh, in higher amounts throughout the day and it peaks at bedtime, right? So that's uh, what caffeine does is it blocks those adenosine receptors So you can't have that calming effects occur and you can't have sort of that that sleep induction. Uh, You are blocking it and uh, causing a stimulating effect in most people. Not not all individuals will, in fact, have that effect. Um, But so I would um, look at the smaller doses in anticipation of that 2 to 4 a.m., so perhaps at 10 p.m., right. start that hourly or every 90 minutes and try to um, have a, a wider span uh, through the daylight.
0: And that's easily achievable with most normal and reasonable caffeine-laced nutrition products, gels yeah. or blocks or things like that. If I've always felt that if athletes just switch – from the non-caffeinated version of the, for, of the sports nutrition products they're using to the caffeinated version of the sports nutrition products that they're using at about midnight or something like that, they're yeah. going to get themselves in that correct dosage by the time that they actually need it.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. I still do feel nervous about the caffeine concentration and how uh, well that that is controlled. Uh, in so, the product. In the product. Yeah. Uh, so we don't have, I mean, of course we have the evidence for, uh, well, we do have with pre-workouts and different formulations. Now, if you're looking at something like a gel, uh, I would feel more confident that the milligrams that's on the label is in the product. Uh, but unless we're batch testing these products, and I'm I'm sure probably something like Consumer Lab has done, done this, uh, but I think that's important. And so... What I would err on is to break up tablets, so I know for sure mm. what's in it, and just stick with your caffeine-free products. Mm. Um, so that that is my approach, uh, just to be a little bit more in control. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I do think that you probably have a very good chance of uh, being uh, it, it being uh, you can be confident that the, the dose that's on the label is probably uh, true to, to what you're receiving if it, with an error, maybe plus or minus 10%. Um, but if it's, I mean, I guess this is coming from a perspective of someone working with uh, professional athletes or Olympians, and with regard to our national athletes, for example, we don't even risk it being made at a pharmacy right. with an enca- Later, we use our own encapsulator uh, to make sure there's no contamination and the dose is exact through the powder uh, for the need of the body mass of that specific athlete. So the more precision, the better. And uh, especially when you're looking at a substance that uh, you you want those performance enhancements, but also where getting too much or too little can either uh, you know be not allow you to atre- achieve that uh, ergogenic effects or too much may cause anxiety or other adverse effects. Uh, so perhaps if you're in a race where you can sleep for two to four hours mm-hmm. or, um, or with athletes that are in the playoffs and we want them to be able to sleep, uh, we do want to err on that lower dose. So again, you know, it, it, it does d- depend on that sport, but if we're sort of sticking with that, um, that 24-hour time period, uh, I still would – I would make that known to the runners right. that, listen, if, if you really want – if you feel you're sensitive in, in, on both sides of it, that you will be too tired if you don't get enough, and you may get a little bit an- anxious uh, if you get too much. So if you find that you're an individual that needs to be very precise – I would uh, get, you know, get the caffeine powder and make your own capsules um, or uh, certainly some of the tablets I I find are reliable, like the No-Dose or Wake Up. That type of
0: thing. And some athletes, they just don't like the taste of the caffeinated version of their sports nutrition yeah. products. We're we're gonna we're gonna dive down the individual rabbit hole because I know that's your an area of passion for you, especially on the genetic side, but I've got a pretty hilarious story about this that I think will dovetail into it pretty nicely. And it has to do with the maximum dosage. Um, I, I was I was pacing somebody um, at the end of a hundred-mile race several years ago, and the way the situation was is there was only two people ahead of us on the course at the time. And I'm running alongside with my runner and I find a, a one of those blister packets of is either no dose or Viver. And I can't remember right now. I should be able to remember because one's white and one's yellow. Anyway, yeah. I find a blister packet of, of one of those. And there were six unopened individual 200 milligram caffeine tablets Okay, and I I just knew, and I'm going to keep this anonymous because this person would appreciate that. I knew who had it ahead of me because they were a very habitual caffeine user. But the only thing that I could think of is it was the intent of that runner to take all of those, all 1,200 ah. milligrams. Because they right. would not spare one extra ounce. There's no reason for them to have right. six and not just two, right? I knew yeah. I yeah. knew that the intent was to take all six. And I remember looking at it and processing this whole story in my head at the time, knowing who it was and knowing this yeah. person has is is going to was going to take all six and going, I'm really glad that I found all of these and not an arrhythmic runner. Another couple of miles down the trail because yeah. he or she had taken all of these. So your point of there, there's a maximum dose that we want to avoid, I think is really well taken because you can't, you can absolutely have a lot of negative effects for exceeding. And there's no positive effects for exceeding the six milligrams yes. per ki- per per kilogram ratio.
1: Yeah yeah no that that's um very interesting uh, <laughs> maybe you saved saved a life
0: I didn't do uh, anything I just found it
1: <laughs> yeah yeah well no you well you picked it up you didn't run after them and give it back right no
0: I kept them I showed them afterwards I was like you're gonna take all these weren't you and this person was like yeah I was I'm like I'm glad you yeah. did." and so I gave him a the lecture so uh,
1: how did they do in the race
0: uh I well I can't tell because it would give it away <laughs> oh
1: okay well Perhaps they didn't need it. Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely uh, did.
0: They did, they did well. Let's put it that way. Okay, okay. Uh, they definitely did not hamper them that they dropped this.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. There you go. That was an important
0: lesson for them. I hope. Oh heard. my gosh. Anyway, you probably didn't listen yeah. to me at the end of the day. Um. Okay. We've we've dabbled around the surface of this kind of final component that I want to talk about, but I really, I really want to relay this to the listeners as well. We're starting to appreciate more and more that there are these individual uh, variances in people's tolerance and the way that they are affected by caffeine. And you mentioned that there's, there, there's could, it's either going to be environment or genetics or the confluence of these two a lot of hype gets put on the genetic piece of it. I've had a genetic test. I know that I'm a slow metabolizer, so I shouldn't be drinking caffeine in the afternoon, which I still like to do. <laughs> but right. but a lot of people are going to be familiar with just getting an over-the-counter direct-to-consumer genetic test that can that can determine this. Before we dive into that like paint the whole landscape in as briefly as you can, of this inter-individual variability in terms of how caffeine affects people?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, there's the genetic uh, component, of course, but I'll I'll just list uh, a a few other areas to consider. That is the training status. Uh, So the research is mixed, but that may play a role, whether you're a trained athlete or not as well-trained. Um, If you're caffeine naive, meaning you don't use caffeine regularly, you may have uh, a a greater response. But on the flip side, being a frequent user doesn't necessarily impair that enhancement. So I think the research is really leaning toward the the side that uh, habitual users can get just as much of an effect. Uh, So I don't think we have to worry, and I certainly would not advise that someone Take uh, and I get this question all the time: Should I take a week or, or yeah. two or a month off caffeine yeah. in order for uh, during my uh, competitive phase or you know in season to get the most benefit? Well, you may lose out on some important training uh, adaptations in that two, three, four week period. So certainly, if if caffeine is something that's benefiting you in in training and in competition, you really don't want to give up those weeks of not having as, as uh, high of a quality of, of training session. Um, you, you, we also need to consider, and this is related to genetics, some individuals have a greater withdrawal effect than others. So we see uh, through, through research that have been associated to, to certain genes as well, we haven't done uh, necessarily interventions on this, but we do know with questionnaires that some uh, can skip three days of using caffeine and they're fine. They can, oh, I'll have a coffee this morning, I won't have a coffee for the next three mornings, doesn't really affect me too much. Others can have severe migraines, severe, severe fatigue. Uh, so when we look at research where they've only abstained from caffeine for 24 hours, that's where we, we may not uh, see that true performance enhancement and maybe falsely, we think there was a benefit right. only because it's bringing them out of that withdrawal. So if I'm feeling awful and tired because uh, I'm having this withdrawal effect and you give me some caffeine, I might perform better, but it wasn't really better uh, you know, due to the caffeine. It just brought me out of withdrawal. So that's something to consider. That's something Um,
0: that used to be de facto practice. And you remember this where we used to take people off of caffeine before their critical event or whatever. And we ended up screwing them up more than more than actually helping them. That's why I that's why I do not advocate for that, for that, uh, to, to, for athletes to abstain for, from caffeine for the one to two weeks before an event, because it typically has more negative effects or it can have more yeah. negative effects than positive effects at the end of the day. I'm really glad yeah. that you mentioned that.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. We don't we don't want to uh, sort of uh, get someone, um, yeah, sort of off their their program uh, mentally and physically, right. and uh, especially when we're dealing with something that is a psychoactive substance. And uh, we we want to keep the mind clear and focused. And so I don't advise changing up much of anything in your in your few weeks before your event uh including diet i mean if you taper down your training uh your your glycogen is obviously going to be uh at a higher level if you're not expending as much but otherwise you sort of don't want to rock the boat Um, so now when it comes to genetics uh so when i began uh my research i guess we're looking at eight years ago now when i started my phd The the first study that did look at genetic uh, differences was uh, uh, Christopher Womack, um, and he did find that when looking at one gene, uh, the CYP1A2 gene, which is part of the the P450 uh, uh, enzyme uh, sort of uh, pathway within your liver that detoxes uh, various substances, including caffeine. So this identifies an individual as a fast metabolizer of caffeine, they break it down quickly, or a uh, slow metabolizer. And then we do see a third genotype, which is what we label as an ultra-slow metabolizer. Now, most studies combine those slow metabolizers, so they're not seeing perhaps a true effect of the ultra-slow individuals, which is what my study did. I did find that there was a difference in performance between the uh, fast metabolizers or AA genotype. The heterozygotes really had not much of an effect. Some had a small improvement, some had a a small impairment. But then it was that third group, uh, unfortunately only eight participants. So I only had eight athletes with that genotype, which is typical of the frequency we see in the population is around 10%. Uh, but I had uh, over 100 athletes, yet only eight of the athletes were of that ultra-slow metabolizing genotype. So that really is not uh, allowing us to uh, conclude much. It, it needed to be replicated. But unfortunately, the studies that have come after, uh, have uh, some of them have shown that the fast metabolizers are, I think, in all but one study, do appear to perform the same or better. So it's always been those fast metabolizers that are likely getting more of an ergogenic benefit. Now, when those groups are combined uh, and we don't see that there's an impairment, to me, uh, it's those uh, smaller studies where maybe there's only one uh, ultra slow metabolizer, one or two, and so we don't have enough of a sample size to, to replicate what I found. Uh, so, I think what we do need is a study where we have uh, 50 perhaps in each genotype. We need a, a larger sample size in that ultra slow metabolizing group. Now, we have, uh, there was a recent study showing with a, a caffeine uh, mouth rinse that uh, out of 10 subjects that they recruited, nine of them were actually in this ultra slow genotype, which is interesting. Uh, and one was a heterozygote. And so just a regular slow, not ultra slow. And this is a group out of Brazil. And uh, so I've asked the authors, of course, are you sure you found nine yeah, slow yeah, metabolizers right. be, or ultra slow? Because that's not the usual, but they're, they certainly did. It could be the, the ethnic background uh, in that population, but they did not have uh, a benefit from this caffeine mouth rinse. Uh, so, so I would, I would say that we're, We definitely can't conclude for sure. We know there are differences, uh, but certainly what I advise to athletes is that if you are a fast metabolizer and you want to perform better in your sport, I would advise that you do try caffeine. Now, if you are a slow metabolizer, either the moderately slow or ultra slow, I would monitor your performance. And I would try uh, some workouts or some races. I mean, of course, try uh, try it in training uh, without caffeine and see how you do. And I do have a couple of anecdotes, of course. And I did have one runner that had uh, had been a runner, a 10k runner for over uh, probably 12, 15 years, and had always used caffeine. His genotype was that ultra slow metabolizer. I said, you know what? Just try some runs without caffeine. See how it goes. He was convinced that that's, you know, he was not going to perform better. So he ended up doing ten runs without caffeine because each time he was surprised uh, that he was actually performing the same. Then two out of those ten actually were a personal best for him, mm. and so he couldn't believe it because he didn't have that. And this brings us to another point. He didn't have that sort of mental uh, jacked up beast mode, yeah. which I see also in some of my unpublished unpublished research that just because you're feeling mentally jacked up, uh, it doesn't mean that, that you're going to perform better. So there can be a mismatch there because in my RCT, uh, some athletes that said they, they felt jittery, but they also felt more energetic. Uh, that they actually perform better on the placebo trial in, in the cycling time trial than on the, the caffeinated trials. So what that tells us is that even though you're feeling stimulated, you're feeling more energetic, it, that does not necessarily translate into better physical performance. Right. But perhaps if you need to be awake, but not physically acting. So if it's purely a cognitive setting, uh, you know, maybe the, our recommendations will differ. Um, so that's one aspect of, uh, so the CYP1A2 gene. We also have the ADORA gene. And that, um, so I, I have a, a paper that will be published shortly uh, looking at, at this gene. And um, I am not seeing um, a benefit with, with this gene as far as endurance performance. And we've sort of, we've, we've seen mixed uh, results in the literature in, in some other studies, including one out of, out of our lab with with strength and uh, power uh, that there there may be um, a, an effect with the cyp one a 2 gene but not necessarily with that with the adora gene. but what this adora gene is showing as that is performance related is the risk of experiencing feelings of anxiety. So we have the, the three genotypes, so this adora gene uh, stands for uh, adenosine. So it's a it's uh, the adenosine receptor gene. So the gene that's encoding the activity of that adenosine receptor. And remember, that's what caffeine blocks to give you that stimulating effect. So we do see that some individuals, the TT genotype, for those that are uh, interested in the exact <laughs> genetics, uh, that they have a higher risk of feelings of anxiety and. This, you can maybe override and still have a performance benefit, but for many athletes, this anxiety may hamper their performance. And certainly when we uh, have sports where you need to be focused, uh, concentrating, like going for 24 hours or like shooting, shooting in the sports. biathlon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, things like that. So the jittery or anxious. And then we have those that are associated with uh, greater sleep disturbances, and so that's actually a study I, I would. My colleague Amy Bender and I would like to do is to see what uh, athletes, and of course, important for the military, who is well equipped to handle right. sleep deprivation right. and get the rescue from caffeine, and who is actually uh, possibly dangerous yeah. without sleep, and the caffeine is not rescuing that stable cognitive, uh, you know, headspace to make the right decisions. And, and then that is going to translate to athletes. I, and I, and she always argues cause she's a sleep scientist. Sleep is the ergogenic aid. Getting your <laughs> sleep is important. And, you know, I was on the caffeine side, I'm but I'm there. not really, I mean, I'm interested in the yeah. truth and the best for our athletes. Um, but I just want to add one quick thing about sleep is that, many athletes or individuals will have caffeine later in the day and say, I have yep. no problem falling asleep, you know, uh, and that's fine. But when we look at studies where we do the EC, uh, the the ECGs or the ECCs, is it EGGs? Um, just looking at the uh, uh, activity in the brain um, that, yeah, it must be ECG. Uh, but there's a few of them. I know it's not EMG. No, that's the muscle. Uh, but looking into the brain that they are actually not uh, reaching that restorative sleep. Right. So the depth of sleep right. to the same degree. And that's really important for glycogen resynthesis, muscle repair, immunity. Uh, so we have many factors that are, uh, or many areas that are impaired with, with not having this restorative sleep. So even if you felt like you didn't wake up, caffeine is still negatively impacting your sleep. And, uh, so, so that's an important factor too, of taking it too close to bedtime.
0: Yeah. I, once again, this is going back to the original or back to some of the initial part of the conversation is I feel that caffeine in the traditional ergogenic sense where you're using it before a workout can be a one up, one down, or maybe one up, two down, or yeah. the workouts a little bit better, but the sleep is worse. And sometimes the sleep being worse either counteracts the effect of the, of caffeine or is even counteracts it to a greater extent. Yeah. Um,
1: Your adaptations, uh, you know, not, not over time, you're not getting uh, stronger. Perhaps you're not uh, uh, building uh, more mitochondria. Right. Uh, You know, you're not getting that mitochondrial biogenesis, which is what we actually use caffeine for in fasted training. And we try and rescue those uh, training sessions using caffeine without the fuel substrate in order to increase the mitochondrial biogenesis. And that's that approach of glycogen depleted training. And perhaps the caffeine is not allowing you to have those adaptations because the research is mixed and that could be one uh, aspect that has not been controlled for.
0: So many rabbit holes. (laughs) Um, Okay. You mentioned the fast metabolizers, the slow metabolizers, and the ultra slow metabolizers for the CYP12A gene. Yeah. Roughly, what percentage of the population is going to fall into those categories?
1: Yeah, great question. 50% are fast metabolizers, 40% are slow, but the slow heterozygotes, about 10% are the ultra slow. So I would say with the heterozygotes, we still see some that are improving. Now, this could be the result of another gene. I did, uh, we published a paper on the HTR2A gene, which is uh, serotonin uh, receptor activity. So that was uh, showing that if you're a fast metabolizer, having the CC genotype of this additional gene uh, sort of of reinforced the fact that you're likely to benefit. Uh, So I think that you, why I say monitor is that there's not only one gene involved. We have multiple genes that could be working together, interacting, counteracting each other. So with those heterozygotes, I would say that still many of them will still improve performance. And so I don't think it's just 50% of people out there that will have an, an improvement. Um, and if if we look at sort of my raw numbers of individuals at that four milligram dose, 58 did better on the caffeine trial, uh, 10 had really no change and about 33 worsened. So um, I, I would say as a generalization, uh, what I see in the endurance, in my experience and in the, the literature, probably about, uh, you know, you probably have about a a 75% chance of having a benefit of caffeine as an endurance athlete. Uh, you know, considering your, your, if you didn't know your genotype. So there could be that 25% that's not getting much of a benefit or possibly an impairment, but, but um yeah, baby so so if we look at being a fast metabolizer or twenty uh, percent of the heterozygotes we have fifty plus 20 of you your seventy percent so so but- the
0: genes aren't automatically going to screw you if you're a slow metabolizer so, or an ultra slow metabolizer I think the, I think the listeners can take away two things from this one, yeah. if you have had a genetic test we're going to talk about it in a second and you know sure. that you're a slow metabolizer or an ultra slow metabolizer you still you still could have some positive ergogenic effect from caffeine, and you're going to have to trial it because it's a multifactorial type of drug. The yeah. second thing, and I have to mention this with our audience, is be, if you are in the slow or in the ultra slow category, or you think you're in the slow metabolizing or the ultra slow metabolizing category, that doesn't give you permission to take more. Right. More is not the answer here, right, Nancy?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If, if there's something that I would suggest playing around with, it would be taking it sooner. So mm. perhaps take it 90 minutes before you start your run or your race. And uh, that those are studies that need to be done. I think uh, we don't have enough research on the timing. So how much beforehand, uh, how much during. I think we really need to, to sink our research teeth into that and see what are the differences with taking a, uh, a small dose uh, uh, 90 minutes before and then another top-up dose maybe just before uh, in the middle of training, as we discussed? So I, I think what happens in research is because the methods are done one way, we give six milligrams per kilogram of body mass 60 minutes before the start of this exercise testing, and almost every research group tends to do that. Uh, so in my study, we had different timing because the exercise tests I did for strength, power, anaerobic, the wind gate, mm-hmm. and the endurance cycling time trial. So uh, some of them started at 30 minutes, 40 minutes. The cycling time trial started around 60 minutes. Uh, but we also had um, so not only the timing uh, beforehand, um, but that we need to consider. But the amounts at each of those intervals have, have not been, um, I, I don't think, researched consistently or or enough. I'm
0: almost feeling like this is following the carbohydrate path, right? Where first we add in layers of, okay, we know this is the general range of carbohydrate for an endurance athlete. This is the range of carbohydrate intake we need to target for any endurance yeah. athlete. Here's what we need to do for an endurance activity that's higher intensity. Here's what we need to do for lower intensity. Here's what we need to do for this type of person, for that type of person. I almost feel like caffeine's kind of following that same, maybe like five or seven years behind, that same kind of pathway where every few years we start to get a little bit more tailored and tailored recommendations.
1: Yeah. yeah. I agree. And and we do know with the multiple transporters, that was uh, quite a right. Uh, you know sort of some of those landmark uh, papers just recognizing and that is also genetics because we have the genes that are encoding those uh, GLUT2 receptors and you may have a, a, a max capacity of how much glucose you can absorb and having that if you have a low cap a low ceiling there you would be an individual who may benefit by having more fructose or galactose, or uh, so. So that's also where where genes can play a role there. So I think um, I guess the exciting part of research, and not so much for athletes that want to know now exactly what to do, is there's no shortage of things to examine and investigate, and we're learning more with time. And uh, but but I think one thing that's consistent in our learning journey is that there are many factors. Uh, multiple layers of that individualization, and uh, we there are there are often questions that are not being asked of athletes that I think uh, is important. And just as a, a quick example, I see a lot of team sports uh, use caffeine in a way where somebody comes with a bottle, and each rugby player or mm-hmm. basketball player gets mm-hmm. their tablets. And it, there's there's not only the fact that it might not sit well with some athletes, but also the fact that there's a little bit of this, uh, club, this peer pressure. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, if somebody says, no, I'm not going to take any, um, you know, I see, I see that also with my org- ordering plant-based meals or <laughs> vegan meals. If you're not eating, you know, the, the chicken or the, uh, the chicken wings or the ordering the steak as part of a male team, uh, you know, it's risky. It's risky of being ostracized. And I, I think we need to sit down with our athletes and say, what you know, what are your barriers? How are you feeling? How are you sleeping? And I think that's that's going to be our path to success. That's the path to gold is to to consider um, perceived and real barriers and, and that heart-to-heart. I, I can't emphasize enough uh, of sitting down with an individual and, you know, looking them at the eye and saying, let's make you the best you. And how are we going to do this together as
0: a team? Nancy, I've had the exact same experience in consulting with some of the league sports teams where you walk in and they have the exact same prescription laid out for the entire team. You're using the recommendation of, of caffeine, but we've had it in other particularly nutrition for whatever reason, yep. uh, uh, elements. And I've always looked at the coach or the trainer, or whoever's prescribing that and going, okay, would you tell everybody here to bench press 250 pounds? Yeah. Would you tell them all to squat 300 pounds, every single person on the whole team? No, of course yeah. you wouldn't do that. So why are you doing that with this one recommendation? And, and, yeah. and finally, for whatever reason, that kind of like makes the, make, makes the connection. So ne- needless to say with that, one of the things that you harped on is it's not just genetics. And yeah. these direct-to-consumer genetic tests are really prevalent right now um you yeah. can you can get them you can get them everywhere you get them sent to your house you spit in it or you provide a small little droplet of blood you send it back and you get this whole portfolio of things depending upon the the, the test that you're actually getting And one of them and it inevitably is going to be this most of them are just dividing it into fast metabolizer or slow metabolizer at least as far as i've seen has that been your experience as well on the caffeine side
1: Yes. Yeah. They're yeah. not
0: making the, the third category, the third nuance right. category. That's correct. But yeah. I want to get your general thought on that. And you've already gone through the fact that that's just one part of the equation. But how useful can things like that be to tailor something like caffeine dose for for an individual? If they're out there and they don't really kind of know, they can't get a sense of, you know, how they feel on different dosages and things like that. Is that a reasonable option to try to, to try to like narrow down these broad recommendations to an individual?
1: Uh, By doing a genetic test. Yeah. You mean? Yeah. Um, I think uh, one way that that definitely is helpful is it is increasing awareness. So an athlete that is going to go uh, out there and buy a test and read the results and, and uh, sort of take note of how they're feeling and what the test says. Uh, I, I think that uh, in itself is a good thing, just like we say when individuals journal food, uh, they they are uh, having greater awareness of what they're eating or anyone who starts a diet, whether it's uh, the appropriate diet for them, at least they have greater, greater uh, awareness of what they're ingesting. Now, I, I would say that we have to be careful of some of the direct-to-consumer tests out there because some of the interpretations are not correct, uh, such as caffeine sensitivity and the markers they're using for that. We don't really um, have a uh, we don't have a test for caffeine sensitivity in that term. There isn't sort of a scientific definition right. for that, so we want to make sure they're using the gene that is associated with anxiety, or is it sleep disturbance? And we actually don't know, uh, it's not consistent what genotype it increases the risk of sleep disturbances, even though we have one, uh, the Adora gene, which does look at, look at that. Uh, but we see that one study is sort of different from the other three, so I don't, I think we need more research in that area. Um, so, The direct-to-consumer tests. uh, Me disclaimer: I do work for a genetic testing company. I'm on the scientific advisory board of Nutrigenomics, based in Toronto. So that's with an X, the company name. That um, we 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 really are about the science, and that's all the lab does. This this testing company is is partnered with the University of Toronto. But what I do see is in some of these direct-to-consumer, is that they're interpreting, even science that we've published, they're interpreting it incorrectly, so giving the wrong advice. So I believe that going through a healthcare practitioner, and that's what we do with this company, but there's other companies out there, I would have that accountability uh, that is resulting from you having to answer to the dietitian, nutritionist, Whoever is uh, collecting your saliva sample, uh, doing the test, and inter- going through the results with you, because I think uh, it's easily to miss it's easy to misunderstand yeah. uh, the the results. Uh,
0: so I'm a hundred percent with you, Nancy. Here's my experience on that, just from the listener's perspective, and I, I I don't mind mentioning this at all. So we we had a product on Helix's marketplace. Um, so okay. Helix works for the listeners that aren't familiar with all of these direct to consumer tests. Helix kind of works like the app store where people can right. come in and kind of plug and play their their different Genetic things that they're pulling out of one sequence. So, Helix, the company, will send somebody a test, they'll get sequenced, and they'll do anything from like, here's the type of wine that you're supposed to like, to, yeah. you know, we had a health and fitness product on there and things like that. And I actually, wrote the guidelines for what we called Endurance DNA, which is kind of specifically tailored for endurance athletes. We worked with the scientific advisory board on, you know, on Helix aside. hey, you can write this, you can't write this and things like that. I had to water it down. Me, this is me writing it. I had to water it down so much. I didn't like what I was presenting in either case, A, because it was too watered down and then B, because I didn't feel like it, you know, provided any sort of value to the consumers. So at the end of the day, what I decided is we would rather pair it with a consultation with a coach. Yeah who can actually look through it all in context with the in context with the training in order to really provide some valuable insights so as not to kind of like bastardize the research that's been done and create yeah. a really slick product. Now the caveat to that is is it's boring, right? I mean it's yeah. a boring product because you can't say, oh well you've got the blue gene, so you need yeah. to friggin' lift weights or whatever it is. Everybody wants that yeah. like super simple answer. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I, I take issue with some of those recommendations yeah. because uh, there are too many variables, and I don't I think it's really a, a disservice to the athlete. And what I say in giving lectures is, uh, your coach knows best how you should train uh, compared to the current direct to consumer genetic tests uh, currently available in the marketplace. So trust your coach, trust your own intuition. And don't start lifting heavier or doing more cardio because of a test. I, I think you can, that can be some layer of information, but you don't want it to be the end all be all. It, it's, you want to take information from a variety of sources. So perhaps your genetics, your blood work, your diet, your coach, your, your, yourself, Yeah. you know, that, you know, especially with runners, you can feel a lot. If you tune in, dial in to your own, intuition, I I think is underrated. Yeah. So
0: the way that I've always, the way that I've always presented it is it can shade the prescription, not should shade the prescription. It can shade the prescription because I've had, once again, personal experience. This is another rabbit hole. We're going to be on air for four (laughs) hours, Nancy. I've had the, I've had the experience where I've had an athlete, really good athlete, really successful athlete, have a genetic test, get the results back. And had I known those results and followed what I was supposed to do based off of the test, I would have done something completely different. Yet I still did something different. An athlete was really, 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 not just one, but several athletes, really successful. So I always throw... Out those like little shades of caution when these things kind of come back because like you said from the onset it's genetics and envi- environment that impact mm-hmm. you and your genes aren't necessarily 100 of your destiny
1: mm-hmm. yeah and also that we have um so many genes uh i mean we there are millions of, of variations i mean y- you and i can differ in Hundreds of thousands of areas. Yet we're both human beings, and it's it's amazing that one letter that shows if you're a fast or slow metabolizer of caffeine. Also, one letter can determine if your hair is brown or blonde, or if your eyes are blue or brown. So I don't think we should uh, dismiss uh, some of these single uh, nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs when it's just one one variant of, of one gene. Uh, but for most outcomes, if you look at VO2 max or strength or uh, the ability to put on muscle mass, all of these involve thousands of genes. So looking at one is not going to give us a complete answer. And if you think of looking at a genetic test and say, hey, you know what, that may influence my outcome or my training by 1%, but I can't forget that there's another 99% that I should be addressing at the same time or perhaps uh, more importantly, because I have better control over it. Um, so I, I think if, if you could, uh, you know, understand 50 of your genes and you think of all of them put together, maybe can impact your performance or, you know, predict some somewhat of your, your future ability by 5%. Sure, use that guidance. But it's also like supplements. You know, you you want to work with your your foundation. Don't work with the supplement right. that might give you 0.5% improvement. You know, unless you're deficient, some of these supplements or micronutrients are not going to make or break you. It's, are you hydrated? Are you getting enough <laughs> carbohydrates? You know, start with those things that aren't as sexy. But that that's how we build an athlete is, is going from the foundation up. You know, uh, and then we add the sprinkles on the ends.
0: Too many rabbit holes. Yeah, <laughs> I knew this was going to happen with chat you. Again. I know. We'll bring you back out again. It was awesome. It took us a long time just to get this first one off the ground. Maybe know, like three I years know, from I'm now, sorry. we'll have another one. When we yeah. can travel. I'll come up to Toronto, and we'll do it. A well, you know thing. what I would
1: love to talk about is uh, plant based nutrition. Okay, so that on. is my my new passion, and I would love to help runners. Uh, learn more about how they can eat more plant-based or uh, vegans, uh, be vegan, I'm, disclaimer, I am vegan, but I'm also a messenger of the research and I'm, I'm doing a bit of research in this area now. And I, th- I think it's really important, um, especially for those that are feeling uh, concerns for the treatment of animals, the environment, and many that feel uh, that uh, for their mental health, they want to make this switch. And how can we do that and still have them perform optimally? Because um, it's, you know, it's not just about your physical health and and you know the macronutrients, but it's overall your philosophy for life. And what really plays a, a big role in that is is how you are eating and interacting with with the planet and with others. And so, so I think this is an area of extreme growth in the next several years. And and I'm really excited to be. Uh, part of um, helping with that direction of those that, that want to still be able to perform their best. And we have some exciting research coming out.
0: All right, well, there you go. Open invitation. You get to come back on and talk about that. That was my very first podcast, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. We had uh, vegans versus the omnivores or something like that. It was right oh, around yeah. the game changers, and I was totally taking advantage oh, of all yeah. the hype. You know how that goes.
1: <laughs> yeah, the game changers. That's something. Yeah, dismantling that. But I there, there's two sides to that story. Totally. Um, absolutely. Totally. I mean, I I am shocked of the amount of people that came out of the the woodwork to slam that movie, and it's like relax. No one is going to take away your steak. You know, it was just the, Oh, that was uh, I, I mean, never in history. I don't think if we had so many athletes come to their coaches, sports nutritionists and say, Oh my gosh, you know, should I go vegan or what am I missing? And, and that, that really caused some, some major waves, some tsunamis. I would it, say it was
0: an interesting catalyst. I I totally get you because it had the right, com- it had the right combination of timing Really slick production, an intriguing storyline, and it polarized kind of both sides of the argument. I think in an equal, in opposing fashion, and it yeah. elevated the stature of the movie because of that. All of which was yeah. intentional. I mean, yeah, Hollywood people behind it—they know how to push people's yeah. buttons. Yeah. But yeah, we'll bring you back on Nancy. Absolutely, hundred yeah, percent. We'll talk about it. Um, really quick, tell people. Where they can find you, and particularly your Twitter handle, because you were an awesome Twitter follow.
1: Oh, thanks, Jason. You really are good. Uh, so, yeah, so my Twitter is uh is uh Nancy with an I guest uh RDPHD, I believe is what it is. So so Nancy guest R D Ph and Nancy with an I. Um yeah, there I want to do more on Instagram, it's a matter of time. Uh, so I'm, I'm not uh, too active, uh, I, I will uh, more so on Instagram, and I want to try and add more science to, to Instagram, but certainly on, on Twitter, and I do uh, interact with a lot of people. The one thing I do like about Twitter is that you can have discussions, and you can have multiple conversations, and I think that's really important to have some of this important scientific discourse, and to have disagreements and opinions and talk about a study. And you just can't have those same kind of discussions on Instagram and the same number of people uh, participating. So, uh, and I do answer questions. If someone responds to one of my tweets, I do my best to answer everybody. So that's also a way of capturing me, uh, um, you know, and asking questions.
0: Go follow Nancy on Twitter, you won't be disappointed. She does engage. Uh, thank you. Yeah, you do engage very well, Nancy. You do it in a respectful and intriguing way. One that's entertaining as well. I always appreciate it. I I lurk way more than I comment just because it's fun. But anyway, okay. go give Nancy a follow. Anything else you want to plug Nancy before we go? Uh,
1: no, I you know, I just um well, one, you know, I hope the Olympics is a success. Um, my heart really goes out to athletes that uh, have been training for Tokyo and, and what's happened. Uh, but everyone, you know, be safe out there and, and things are going to get better. And, um, yeah, we're just I, – I think if you look at the roaring 20s uh, after the Spanish flu, of course, in, in um, 1918 – I think we're really in for a lot of activity out there, a lot of events, and I think we have a lot to be excited about. And certainly, that's going to happen in the sport community. So, people, just hang in there, and uh, and a lot will be happening. So, so take this time to listen to your podcast because otherwise, you're going to be out in the world, you know, <laughs> <Perfect>. doing
0: stuff. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah.
1: Okay, thanks, Jason. We'll talk again.
0: Thanks, Nancy. Appreciate it. Okay,
1: take care. Bye bye.
0: All right, folks, there you have it. There you go, Nancy. We will absolutely take you back up on the offer to come back on the podcast and talk all about plant-based nutrition. I know it's something that you're really passionate about. Listeners, go follow Nancy on Twitter. It is worth your time. It is really fun. And I guarantee you, you will learn something along the way. Thank you, Nancy, for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it. The listeners appreciate it as well. I appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners. Thank you, guys. You are what really makes this podcast. That's it for now, people. As always, we will see you out on the trails.